0: Good morning, everybody. Doing well, I hope. Our president, huh? Somebody go at you. (laughs) Our president' uh, primary objective as president is to bring climate control under consideration. Uh, I listened to a speech you made the other day, and it bothered me some. To tell you the truth, Uh, he was talking about uh, the fires we had over in Maui, Hawaii, and then um, the heat wave through uh, the middle south of the world, the hurricane that hit Florida, and he said this was uh, caused by uh, our burning fossil fuels. And uh, I found that more than a little bit disturbing. mean he, he got to talking about intelligent people understand that we have a climate problem that's been caused by humanity and those who don't understand it simply aren't intelligent. And then I got a little riled up. Uh, and I thought we'd talk about that today. You know a lot of people over this climate stuff uh, are having a lot of problems. Uh, mental anguish and such things. Uh, Right now there's a lot of young people, uh, married people, who won't have children because they're not going to bring children into a world that's doomed in the next few years. Um, A lot of people uh, are having uh, mental problems. There was a woman on television and she said every time she looked at her 10-year-old boy I thought about him, uh, she would start weeping. And it would cause her to cry for the next day or two because of the great fear she had that uh, her child uh, wouldn't be able to survive the, the coming doom. The, the climate thing has been taken to the level of um, we're gonna destroy the world in X number of years. It's been going on for a long time. First time uh, I ever remember hearing about the world coming to an end because of fossil fuels was, it was supposed to end back in 89. And it seems like just every couple of years, the world was coming to an end. I know for a while the magic number was 12 years. John Kerry, uh, he's one of Biden's cabinet members, uh, he's big on the 12 year and it's all over speech. I realize that it does you know, people contribute a lot of money to this uh, this climate thing. Uh, 1.9 trillion dollars, with a T, was earmarked uh, for climate control, tax dollars, and uh, a lot of people contribute extra monies trying to solve this problem. Um, I hope nobody here suffers with such thoughts of those, uh, those nightmarish tales that uh, were told by those who are supposed to know what's going on. I want to talk a little bit about it and let's see what we can figure out. These natural disasters, is this from heaven or is it of men? Did we cause it or is this just the way the the world has been designed? Jesus, uh, the Son of God, is referred to as the one who made the worlds And even now, it is he who upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ created everything that exists, and in addition to that, he sustains it day by day. When you listen to politicians talk, it almost sounds like this is in the the hands of men, controlling these matters. It's almost as though the insinuation is that Christ isn't doing a very good job and men are going to have to take control and make the world a better place to live. Uh, Jesus is in charge. And as a Christian, I find great relief from that knowledge because I know he has the power to sustain the world, and he shall. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, what was read a few moments ago, he's not only the creator. The day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away, everything above us with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it shall be burned up. Jesus is not only the creator of everything that exists, he's also the destroyer of everything that exists. From just a couple passages, what we learn about Jesus simply He created the world, he sustains the world, he destroys the world. Point, it's his world. He's the one in charge, not us. He's the one in charge. I think we should be kind to our environment. Don't misunderstand me. I don't believe people are going to destroy the world. I do believe oil was put in the ground for a reason, and I do believe we found a good use of that oil. I like to drive and get around. In Matthew chapter 24 and the end of the world, Uh, a lot of people use this text as signs that are leading up to the end of the world. Uh, I wanna use it today to show you that just as there are people today talking about the end of the world in so many years, the same thing was going on 2000 years ago back in Jesus's day He knew it was going to happen, so he spoke to his apostles to ensure them of what was going to happen. I want to analyze it for just a moment rather quickly. Jesus went out of the temple. He departed from, went away from the temple. His disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. The temple was a glorious place, and Jesus had been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, in his speech recorded in Matthew chapter 23. The apostles were fascinated by that. And as they came out of the temple and all the buildings around, Lord, look at these buildings, look how massive they are. Do you mean to say that all these things are gonna tumble down to the ground? It was incredible, and they were having a hard time accepting that. How could this be? This was the house of God, and they didn't understand. Well, Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Look around. Look at these buildings. Look at the temple. Remember what they're looking at because it's very important. Look at the buildings. Look at the temple. Why, Lord? Because we're going to talk about these things, which were the buildings of the temple. I'm going to explain something to you. Assuredly, I say to you, make no mistake about it. Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. They're coming down. They didn't know it at the time, but we know with 2020 hindsight that just 40 years later, the prophecy of our Lord came true. The Romans not only conquered Jerusalem, they took turning plows and turned the ground over. They absolutely destroyed it except for the wedding wall. It survived. Now, they went up on the Mount of Olives, and as he was sitting there resting before they finished their journey, the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they were they're, they're talking to him. We, we got a question. Tell us, when would these things be? What would be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, let's analyze the question quickly. Number one, when will this happen? What's he talking about? These things. That's what he's been talking about. The temple, the buildings. When will they be brought down? And then there's a second question. What sign should we look for? They expected to see a sign before the buildings fell down. But that wasn't the only thing they thought would happen when the buildings fell down. There's a conjunction there, the conjunctive and. And of the end of the age. It's easy to see that the apostles believed that when Jerusalem fell, when the temple fell, that the world was going to come to an end. There are some people today that they believe if if Wall Street was to fall, the world will come to an end because that's how powerful Wall Street is. But this is the temple, the house of God. When the house of God is brought down low, they surely believed that the world was going to come to an end. So they asked two questions. Lord, when will this happen? Number two, what sign will precede the fall of it? But they were mistaken, because as we know, Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. The temple was brought down low 40 years after Jesus made this prediction, and the world hasn't ended. So the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the world, are not one stupendous event. There are two events. So when Jesus answered their question, he answered it two times. The first, he asked, when will Jerusalem fall? He's going to answer that. He's going to tell them when Jerusalem will fall. What sign will precede her falling? He'll tell them that. There's going to be a sign. Jerusalem's going to fall. You're going to see Jerusalem fall. And there's a sign that will be visible before Jerusalem falls. But then he went on to help them understand the bigger picture. Number three, he's going to answer when will the world end? And number four, what sign will precede the end of the world? Now, today I'm only interested in the first two questions when will Jerusalem fall, and what sign shall I precede her fall? verses 4 through 35 he answers the first two questions and then with verse 36 through chapter 25 verse 41 he answers the second two questions but relevant to our study today is the first take heed that's the first thing he said take heed be on your toes be on your guard beware lest somebody deceive you there's going to be people that's going to tell you stuff it's not true Make sure you know who they are and what they're teaching. Otherwise, you'll be deluded into believing a lie. Many are going to come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. Many is going to take the position that they have the power of the Christ, and they're going to make certain predictions, certain prophecies. The world will come to an end. Jerusalem will come to an end, and they'll tell all about how it's going to happen. They keyed lest you believe the lie he's going to tell them what false signs to look for they're going to give you signs these signs aren't true they're making them up what's going to happen lord you will hear war and rumor of war see that you be not troubled why these things happen but the end the end is not yet what other signs will there be well Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And historians documented that between the years 30 and 70 A.D. there were many, many earthquakes in the Palestinian area. That wasn't the norm, so to speak, in the past. There were always earthquakes but at this particular time, there were many, many more earthquakes. All these, he said, are the beginning of sorrows. These signs indicating that the end is near, he said, this is just the beginning. It's not the, a sign of the end, but the beginning. He went on to say, you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. They believed Jesus, they didn't believe everything else, and because of it, they were going to be hated. Many will be offended, they'll betray one another, they'll hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and they will deceive many. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will go crow, but he who endures to the end, that person will be saved. The person who is not duped by all the lies that are going to be told, that's the person that's going to be saved. Why? The person that's not duped by the lies is the person who put his confidence the Jesus. I believe what Jesus says. And if somebody contradicts Jesus, then I'm not gonna pay attention to it. The word endures is the powerful word here. Able to overcome all the deceptions that they're going to have to deal with. These are the survivors when it comes to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is coming back for you okay you're not going to be destroyed by fossil fuels because the world comes to an end jesus is coming back for you in matthew 24 36 and 7 of that day the end of time they asked the question when will it be what will be the sign that day he's already discussed the fall of jerusalem that day the end of time No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. John Kerry's wrong. He doesn't know the end will be in 12 years, but he's been saying it since the 1980s. He doesn't know. Joe Biden doesn't know. All these experts around the world, they don't know it's not their world, they're not sustaining the world, the Son of God is, and it's within His power to determine the time when the world will come to an end. It will come to an end, but it's not going to be because of fossil fuels, it's because Jesus of Nazareth is coming back and He'll destroy the earth Himself. He said it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. Nobody's going to be expecting it. You're not going to be looking for the world to end. It's going to be a typical day. It's going to be a day much like today. Nobody's looking for the world to end today. That's not what we do. We, we think it could, but we don't think it will. We're making plans for tomorrow, for next week. We're living life normally. Jesus said when I come back, it's going to be just like that. Just a regular old day, much like today. This is how the coming of the Son of Man will be. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Because we don't know, we're careful not to be bogged down in sin. I'm not really looking for the Lord today. I know he could come. I wish he would come. But, yeah, I have no idea. I don't really expect it. but he could come so i'm going to be good i'm going to do my best to avoid sin and walk with him today just in case today is the day he comes back the lord manipulates nature at will and this is something unbelievers don't accept probably never even think about uh i know some people say they're believers but they're not not really. Uh, they don't know God they don't know what God does and because of that they draw conclusions that are simply incorrect throughout history God has manipulated nature for his own purposes for his own reasons it's not something new it's something very very old the Lord can manipulate nature to demonstrate that he's angry he does that you know When God's angry the way human beings are behaving he can manipulate nature and cause men to suffer incredible pain for example in Isaiah chapter 30 verses 30 and 31 the Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard he will show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his intense anger You're going to hear the voice of the Lord, Isaiah is predicting. How will we hear the voice of the Lord? He explains. There's going to be devouring fire with scattering, with tempest, with hailstones. The Lord manipulates the natural elements. He uses them as a way of demonstrating that he's angry with the way people are behaving. And it's a warning at the same time that there must be repentance or there could very well be the conclusion. He did it many, many years ago, about 1000 BC. It's not new, it's very old. And what about God? He's the same yesterday, today and forever, is he not? Could not the God that manipulated nature in Isaiah's day do the same thing today? If not, why not? The God I know about is all powerful. He does not change. There's no shadow of turning. And it's not to be mean. It's to cause people to think about what they're doing and what the consequences of it are. We always look at at God as being a hands-off person. He's not a hands-off person. God is very, very much involved in daily living. And he speaks. He speaks through his actions. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down. This was the nation in trouble. But so was Israel. Israel... Would be beaten down first by Assyria the Assyrians are going to be beaten down second by God through the natural elements the Lord can manipulate nature to test and increase faith caught out in the Sea of Galilee in a storm the 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 waves were high the little boat was about to flip over the Apostles were scared out of their minds they came to Jesus, who was asleep, and they woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. He arose, he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. A word from the Son of God, and the sea was calm, and all was well. He turned to them, and he said, where is your faith? Why did you doubt? Why were you afraid? They were in the boat with the Son of God. No harm was going to come to them. Well, yeah, but this is, this is a big storm. They don't understand who they're hanging out with. But they will one day, but not today. They were afraid. They marveled, saying to one another, Who is this guy? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. Who have we fallen in with? Who are we sharing our lives with? They thought they knew Jesus, but they had a lot to learn. And this day they were taught by the disruption of the wind, the water, and the raging sea. And they learned he was the master of the sea. The Lord can manipulate nature to seek repentance, to drive people to repent. And examples found when he worked signs in Egypt. Think of all the things God did in Egypt. There was two. Was a twofold purpose. Number one, he wanted Israel to be released. Number two, he wanted the Egyptians to repent. I know the Egyptians were bad people. I know they treated Israel like dirt. But God wasn't determined to destroy Egypt. He wanted to save Egypt. And the only way he could do that was by bringing them to repentance. So the signs that we see in Egypt were designed, number one, to get Israel released. Number two, to bring Egypt down to her knees where she would repent. He turned their rivers into blood and their streams. That's something God did. If God did it then, could he do it today? And if not, why not? Has he lost power? Is he smaller than he used to be? Is he less able than he used to be? I think not. He sent swarms of flies. He ordered the flies to go into Egypt. And the the flies, they obeyed him. He ordered the frogs, go and do your frogging in Egypt. And they obeyed him. He gave their crops to the caterpillars, they were sent. Their labor went to the locusts, they were sent. He destroyed their vines with hail. No more wine, their sycamore trees were killed with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail, big hail to kill a cow, and their fox to the fiery lightning. We read the events that took place in Egypt, but do we digest what was actually happening? God commanded everything that happened in Egypt He wanted Israel to be freed. He wanted the Egyptians to repent. And in order to make that a reality, he did what we read about. He caused the rivers to turn red. It wasn't a natural phenomenon. Nature was interrupted by the power of the divine hand. And he got at least half of what he wanted from the event. The Lord can manipulate nature as a sign to buttress his truths. 1 Samuel 12, 16-18. Samuel speaking to the Israelites. They wanted a king. He tried to talk them out of it. They won't listen. So he starts talking again. Now therefore stand. I want you to see this great thing which the Lord, your God, will do right before your eyes. I want you to see the might of the Almighty. Because he's the one you're fighting against. I will call to the Lord. He will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great. Which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for a king. He's accusing them of a great sin, but now he's going to prove that they were guilty of it so samuel called to the lord the lord sent the thunder and the rain that day and all the people greatly feared the lord and samuel i wish i had the power to do that but i don't samuel did and he did god does and he did the question is does god do that now does he create a hurricane I don't think he creates all hurricanes. I think most hurricanes are just a result of a natural phenomenon. Could he create a hurricane if he chose to do so? Could he set an island on fire if he chose to do so? Could he cause extreme heat throughout the South if that's what he wants to do? Could he cause the atmosphere to cool down and be cooler if that's what he wanted to do. If not, why not? God's not asleep. God's not asleep. He's younger than we are. He's more vibrant than we are. He's more alive than we ever dreamed of being. He's always ready to do what he needs to do to accomplish his will, which is carried out in a variety of ways. The Lord can manipulate nature to punish sin and he's done it often. 2 Samuel 21:1. Now there was a famine in the days of King David. It lasted for three years, year after year. And David asked the Lord, "Why? Why are we suffering from this great famine?" You know, the king was asking for the famine to be taken away, ease this burden that we're having to bear here in Israel. Please, O Jehovah. And the Lord answered him, "It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. It's because he killed the Gibeonites." Bloodthirsty, Saul was bloodthirsty and because of Saul's bloodthirstiness, God sent a famine into the land to punish Israel for the crimes that Saul committed. He was the king after all. He should have been dealt with. His crimes should have been addressed, but they weren't. Why, he was the king, he was rich he get away with murder, and he did, and God was angry. And they experienced the famine in the land. First Kings 17 and 1, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word until I tell it to rain. When I tell it to stop raining, which he did, It's not going to rain again until I tell it to rain. Why, Who? ain't nobody going to believe that man. He don't have that kind of power. Well, he didn't, but his God did. In the next chapter, verse 1, It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the earth. At the word of Elijah, the rain was turned off. At the word of Elijah, the spigot was turned back on. Three years, God turned it off, God turned it back on because there was something he wanted done. And this was the avenue he chose to get that job done. In Ezekiel 14, 12 through 20, listen to what Jehovah says. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, when the land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread. I will send a famine on it. I will cut off both man and beast from it. Why? Because of persistent unfaithfulness. How would we judge our own nation? as a Christian nation, as an ungodly nation, how would we judge our own nation? Does God consider us to be a persistently unfaithful group of people as a nation? And if so, What could he do? Or what could he allow to happen? How would he punish us for being the most blessed nation on the earth and now becoming one of the most sinful of all? You've got the history of God in the Old Testament scriptures. The Lord can manipulate nature to bring about his own will. In the 105th Psalm, moreover, he called for a famine in the land, and he destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. We all know about the famine that caused the sons of Israel to go to Egypt to hunt for bread. But what we may not have ever done was tie the event together with the taking of Joseph some seventeen years before Joseph was sold into slavery God determined that there would be a famine in the land and the famine struck and it struck in such a time that when Joseph was settled in the land of Egypt his people were so hungry that they would actually go down and trade with the Egyptians in order to find food. God wanted Israel to go to Egypt. He was going to raise them up there. He was going to make them become a mighty nation. And once they were ready, he was going to bring them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, take them out to the Sinai Peninsula and give them a law, send them into the land of Canaan and let them overtake it. And they would stand on their own ground as a powerful people who could take care of themselves. So God caused the famine in the land and he caused the bread supply to run out because he had a plan in mind as to what he was going to do with Israel. God is awesome, I mean awesome. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Written before, that's the Old Testament scriptures. They were written for our living, those of the Christian age. You ever think about it that way? The Old Testament scriptures were written not for Israel. Israel's gone. That was then. The scriptures were translated into Greek in the 3rd century B.C. Why? For us, for me and you. Why? There has to be some reason for it. There must be some value to it, and there is. That we, that is to this end, the scriptures written before were written for us to learn from because of what God wanted to accomplish. Through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. And that's the key, that we have hope. The scriptures were written that we might have hope. Doesn't matter what's going on in this world. It's not ours. It's not ours. We're gonna leave it. We're gonna leave it all behind. It's not ours. We try to be good citizens. We try to live right. We try to be an advantage for the nation. But when all things are said and done, we can do this much and then we have hope. I don't worry about this climate stuff. I have hope. My Lord's in charge. I remember one time hearing about a child on the airplane. The airplane was rocking and rolling in a turbulence. Big time, bad time. And this woman was scared to death. And she had this little boy sitting next to her. She didn't know who he was, but he was sitting next to her. And she thought if she's scared to death, that child must be scared to death. She tried to comfort that boy. She said, it's gonna be okay, son, it's gonna be okay. The kid looked up at her and he said, well, I know it's gonna be okay. And she said, how come you're you're so confident? He said, my daddy's the captain of this plane. (laughs) Ain't, Ain't no problem, everything will be good. His father was flying the plane. Our father is flying this plane. And we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear except sin. That's a different story. Don't let these people scare you. Don't let them cause you to be having sleepless nights. Don't be afraid to have children. God said be fruitful and multiply for those who are able. You're not bringing a children into a world that's doomed in any other fashion than what the world has been doomed all along. Don't listen to John Kerry. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't listen to Joe Biden on these things. He has no idea what he's talking about. There's people who are telling him what to do, and he does it. That's as simple as that. Understanding climate control, he understands it by as much as I do. And I don't understand it at all. But my father's driving this plane. And I'm not afraid. Whatever happens, whatever happens, we will survive. And we will live. And we will live forever. If you're not a Christian, you don't have that hope. Uh, you ought to have that hope. That's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to possess is hope. The hope that God knows you, that He cares about you, that He loves you, and that He's going to take care of you for all your life. Nothing better than hope. When you, when you, when you, when your wife, your mama, your daddy, your child, they pass from this earth. Without hope, you have nothing but pain and misery and agony. But with hope, you can stand at anything. Not that it would be pleasant, but you know that there's a great day coming. There's a better day coming. David said, I've lost my son today, but I'll see him again in the sweet by and by. Without hope, we have nothing. Nothing! But darkness and fear... And we got to listen to these men who's going around talking about stuff they don't know anything about. Trust Jesus. Trust the one who's got the controls in his hands and pay little attention to the rest.